Now I've never particularly been into going to sporting events, but there are certain moments that in a large group of people raise every hair on your body. In the game of rugby, the Welsh crowds are famous for their singing at games, and the sound of tens of thousands of Welsh voices singing their hearts out is spine tingling. Uh, it's an interesting cultural twist though, that some of the songs that these Welsh rugby crowds love singing are Christian hymns about Jesus. Have a look at this one. This great old hymn has a refrain that we just heard. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. It's actually referencing the passage that we're looking at today. But what is quite astonishing is how popular that hymn is. The crowds can be singing about Jesus. Uh, these vast crowds celebrating, in a way, Jesus coming and his words. What we glimpsed in that clip is popular Jesus. And there's still certain moments in our world where you see something like this, a glimpse of popular Jesus. And it feels like everyone is okay with Jesus. Uh, when Christians open an orphanage or run a food drive, our world is pretty happy to talk about that. That Jesus is popular. But then, in the blink of an eye, everything changes. Take the rugby game, for instance. One moment they're quite happily singing about Jesus, the bread of heaven. And then in the same game, a revelation will come to light about how this same Jesus who's here celebrated, has said some hugely controversial and unpopular things. And everyone got offended. And Jesus is out. Now we regularly see this in our world. The vast difference to how the crowds applaud the popular Jesus, usually when it's got to do with caring for orphans or feeding the poor, while it seems only minutes later the crowds of our culture will hear something Jesus said, says, Something that offends, and all of a sudden, Jesus is unpopular. You know, dangerous even. Now maybe you haven't noticed it, but in today's passage, we have this whole range of responses all in one scene. The crowds in Jesus' time go, go from wanting to make him their king because of what he's doing, to by the end of a sermon, Jesus then preaches, either leaving him or wanting to kill him. Now let's read this now and we'll see if, what, if we can pick up what Jesus says that is just so offensive. Over to you, Martin. Hello, everybody. I'm Martin and I'm doing today's Bible reading and we're reading John chapter 6, all of it. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, 
It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the signs Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three to four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realised that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realised that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, 
What signs then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them.
Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. And that's the word of God. Now what a roller coaster ride that passage is. That high at the start. Miracles, healings, probably close to 20,000 people fed with a kid's packed lunch. And the people love it, don't they? Uh, have a look there, John 6:14. After the people saw the signs Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is come into the world. And Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again into a, to a mountain by himself. You'd think this would be the perfect group of people to preach to, wouldn't you? A rapt crowd who want to make you king, and they follow you miles and miles to hear what you've got to say. But here, when Jesus does just that, when he preaches, well, have a look at the result. Verse 60 of chapter 6. On hearing it, many of his disciples says, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples are grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Yes, Jesus, they say effectively, it does offend us. And then verse 66, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. In fact, in the next scene in chapter 7, it begins with these words, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to kill him. You know, that has to be classed as one of the most, the least successful sermons of all time. Now, I know I've preached some duds, but to go from king 
to winning the least popular preacher vote in the space of one sermon? What changed for these crowds? What did Jesus say to offend them so much? And how will we respond when Jesus offends us? That's what we'll be asking as we look through this passage today. Uh, First, we're going to quickly see why Jesus is so popular at the Passover and what's significant there. Then as we get into Jesus' sermon, we're going to see four offensive things that Jesus says here. And as we dig through them, we're going to see if what Jesus says will offend us. And he will say something that offends us. Whether you're not yet a Christian or you've known Jesus for decades, there will always be something that Jesus says that will offend us. And so we're going to finish off by considering our options to respond when Jesus does say something that offends us. So let's kick off with our first point, seeing why Jesus was so popular at the Passover. From verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they, they saw the signs he'd performed healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Now the Passover is a Jewish celebration, especially remembering how through Moses, God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. So some 2,000 years later, uh, the time of the Passover brings to mind, especially this figure of Moses. Uh, It brings to mind uh, people going to a mountain where God would speak to them. It brings to mind manna, this miraculous bread that God fed his people from in the wilderness in their wanderings. It reminded the people of their redemption, that they were slaves and they were released from their Egyptian overlords. So that's the vibe in the air around this feast. And Jesus has already been gaining some attention. He's already been doing great signs, just like Moses did in Egypt. So with all that going on, these people are primed that something is going to happen. And here in John 6, uh, when, when this amazing feeding happens, they're ready for something significant. And, and it happens, something significant happens. Jesus goes up on a mountainside. And with this vast crowd, and he feeds them all miraculously with one child's packed lunch. Uh, somewhat of maybe 20,000 people all completely satisfied. They're full, and there's even leftovers. And these people, primed as they are, they actually respond accordingly. Uh, we read this just before. We'll look at it again, verse 14. They said, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing what they intended to come and make him king, withdrew again to a mountain. They think, rightly, that Jesus is the prophet that God had promised would one day come. See, back in Moses' time, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses speaks God's promise. Uh, He says that the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. This special prophet, not like all the other prophets, the greatest of the prophets. And they think that he's here. And because Moses led their rescue from Egypt, they think that this prophet, like Moses, will bring them rescue, will bring them freedom, not from Egypt this time, but from the Romans. They think that that he's going to bring them salvation, redemption and victory, and so they want to make him king. It's just like that story in Ben-Hur, isn't it? 
But Jesus refuses their efforts. Uh, he, he escapes to a mountain, and he actually escapes uh, in the next bit of the story by walking on water. The disciples leave early. They're in the middle of the lake. A storm's come up. And Jesus comes to them walking on the water, crossing half of the Sea of Galilee, just walking. Uh, and that's, that's amazing. Uh, but this escape of Jesus, even walking on the water, is not enough. These crowds are so committed to finding Jesus, they follow him by land. Uh, and they're fascinated by Jesus. But when they finally catch up to him and arrive, Jesus recognizes they have the wrong idea. Yeah, they're fascinated, but they have the wrong kind of faith. Have a look there in verse 26. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, well, What sign will you then give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? What will you do? Our, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Do you realize how, how crazy this is? This is nuts. They asked for a sign and even dare to suggest bread from heaven. Yeah, Jesus literally did just that. They've got it totally wrong. Uh, they, they don't get what Jesus is offering. They just want miracles. They just want signs. And because they've got it wrong, Jesus preaches. He shows them what it is that they are chasing and what they should be chasing. And this is where our first point, you know, popular at the Passover ends. Because by the end of this sermon, they all leave. And the Jewish leaders want to kill Jesus. So let's have a look at our second point. These four offensive things that Jesus says here, and we'll see how we respond. Now, Jesus says way more than what I'm going to go through here. Um, but this is just four points in this sermon um, that are really pretty blunt. Uh, and, and if you're not offended by the end of this, by at least one of these points, then perhaps you haven't properly understood what Jesus says here. Or I haven't done my job, uh, or both. So, so let's jump in and have a look at the first offensive thing Jesus says which is, you can never be good enough. Verse 27. Do not work for the food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And they asked him, well, what must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? There's only one thing you could do to please God. One thing. And what's that? The only thing you can do to please God is to believe in Jesus. That's it. Even the thing you can do, the one thing that is pleasing to God, isn't about you. It's about Jesus. And that seems offensive. We like to know that we deserve our place. We, we don't like being told that you can't do something. In fact... Uh, not only don't you deserve to be here, you can't even contribute anything worthwhile. You're a charity case. 
And spiritually speaking, when it comes to your relationship with God, that's you. That's what Jesus is saying. Are you offended by this yet? Well, no. Well, let's move on to see this next offense. And that is Jesus saying that he's God. Verse 32. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who's given you bread from heaven, but it's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they said, always give us this bread. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus' claim to be God here comes even more strongly the longer you look at this passage. First, he he continues his theme from chapter after chapter that we've seen, that he has come from heaven. And we see by the Jews' response that this is a claim to be more than human. But Jesus is also claiming to be God in saying, I am the bread of life. Again, back in Moses' day, remember they're thinking of Moses with the Passover? When God was sending Moses to rescue his people and Moses asked, well, what name will I give them? Who will I say sent me? Have a look. Exodus 3.14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And it's that exact phrase that Jesus uses here to reveal who he is. And he uses that same phrase six more times in John. John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. John chapter 10, I am the door. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, I am the way, the truth and the life. John 15, I am the true vine. And the Jews, they pick this up and they are not impressed. Verse 41 But this, the Jews, they began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say I've come down from heaven? Why is it offensive that Jesus should claim to be God? Well, it's because in claiming to be God, he's saying, I am more than a man. He's not merely to be liked or befriended or even ignored. He says, I am God and I am to be worshipped. I am to be obeyed. I am to be accepted. And that is offensive. But he's not even done yet. Uh, Let's move on to his next offensive claim, which is Jesus saying, only I can satisfy. Have a look there in verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Down in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Now, have you hit the point in your life yet where you actually realize it's all meaningless? where you wonder, uh, there's got to be more to life than this. Eat, work, sleep, play, rest, buy. Nothing lasts. Uh, Nothing truly satisfies. And you eat and work and sleep and repeat. It's unsatisfying because we're designed for more. 
We're designed for eternal life in relationship with God. And anything short of that won't last. And here in John 6, Jesus says, True satisfaction is found only in me. I am the bread. I am the water. Nothing else satisfies. Without me, you will go to your grave and unsatisfied and without life. And that's offensive. It's offensive because it's exclusive. We're okay with Jesus saying, you know, I am one way to be satisfied, but the only way to be satisfied? That's offensive. The only way to true life? And if that's offensive, what Jesus says next is even tougher for us to swallow. The next offensive thing he says is you don't choose God. He chooses you. Have a look in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them on the last day. See, we like to think we're in control. We like to think that even if we do come to God for mercy, for forgiveness, that we can at least take the credit for having the sense to come to Jesus. But that's not the case. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes, verse 8, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, And this is not from yourself, it's a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, what Paul's saying is we're saved by grace, another word for mercy, it's undeserved generosity. We're saved by mercy through faith, through believing, through trusting. And even that faith, God has to give us. Even that faith, even that belief is not our own, it hasn't come from us. It's what we see here in John 6. Uh, Have a look in in, in verse 44, that we cannot come to Jesus unless God draws us. It's impossible. We're unable to. And the other side of that is true too. Verse 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. What Jesus says here, if he calls, if the Father calls us, you will come. And this is where we start to realize what it means to be God. See, to be God isn't to have a bit more power. It's to have all the power, sovereign power. God is God because he plans, he creates, he sustains everything. Our God, he shows mercy, he saves people, he gives them life. And because he's sovereign, because he's all-powerful, he gets to give the mercy to who he wants And he only gives mercy at his discretion. Now, does that offend you? See, I I think this gets to us. It feels unfair. As one of my friends describes it, uh, it, it's, it's as if God is operating a lifeboat and choosing to save some people, uh, some drowning people and just ignoring others. But as my friend explained, uh, it's more like, We people were on a battleship, actively trying to sink God's boat. And now we're in the water, we're drowning. But even as we're drowning, we're still shooting at Jesus' boat whenever he gets close enough. And it's these people, these enemies who who are shooting at God that God chooses to save some of. And in that context, the shock isn't that some miss out. The shock is that God chooses to save any of us. 
But we think, well, surely, surely we have free will. Surely we're free to choose to follow God, to repent, to surrender and change sides. But the Bible shows us that pre-Jesus, well, we think of ourselves as free, but as much as we think of ourselves as free to choose the right thing, to choose um, what we want, we're not free. We were dead. Uh, Ephesians 2 again, uh, verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Not sick, not damaged, not even broken. Dead. The other way the Bible describes our pre-Jesus state is as slaves. Uh, Romans 6. Uh, Not willing workers, but enslaved to sin. Now, how much choice does a dead slave have? How How much free will do they have? None. We like to think we're free, but without Jesus, we're under bondage. We're unable to choose life. We're unable to come to God. And into that state, dead in slavery, still God's enemy, still drowning, but shooting at the rescue boat. It's into that state God frees us to trust Jesus and have life in him. He calls us and draws us to himself. And when he calls, we come. That's the reality that the Bible shows us. And I will gladly take that over a trumped up free will any day of the week. And I will pray. I will pray to the God who's in control and can actually save people. Rather than just inviting them to be saved with, with, oh, no power to actually save them because of free will and all that. I believe in and love God's sovereign power, which is why I pray to the God who can actually make a difference because he's God. The reality is that neither I nor anyone else would ever choose Jesus. We would never choose life without God calling and drawing us. We need God to choose us because we are unable to choose him. And while I now know and love that, there was a time when that was offensive to me, when God's choosing of people was like a bad taste in my mouth. So I wonder today where Jesus' offences have left you. Has something that Jesus said got under your skin? And even if you're okay with everything that Jesus has said here, Jesus said a whole bunch of other stuff, and some of it is sure to offend you. So whether it's today or later, when Jesus does offend you, what are you going to do about it? Well, as far as I can tell, we've got three options to respond The first is to pick and choose from what Jesus says. This is what Thomas Jefferson, probably the most famous of the American presidents, did. Uh, Quite famously, he took a New Testament and a razor blade, no joke, and some glue and made his own New Testament, cutting and pasting the bits he liked and didn't like. He called it the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. He liked some of the stuff Jesus says about morals, but... The things he didn't like, he cut out. He cut out all the miracles, uh, most of, uh, most, or pretty well every reference to the resurrection, uh, and any passage that described Jesus as being divine, as being God, he he cut out altogether. Now, now anyone who's remotely rational can see that that is outrageous. It's like what Nathan said last week about a relationship. You can't reconstruct your spouse and just pretend that they're like this and then still call them the same person, that's not an option. 
so, so picking and choosing doesn't work. The, the next option to respond to Jesus when he offends us is to take the option that the crowds took, and that's bail on Jesus. Verse 60. On hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? A few verses later, 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Now, I've actually got far more respect for this person than for the Jefferson. At least you've made the call. You're not pretending. You know where you stand. But it's still a foolish thing to do. It's a bit like being in a desert, dying from thirst, and coming to an oasis that has been made and owned by Jesus. You can come in, you can drink the water, you can eat the fruit, you can have life. But only, Jesus says, only if you'll join my family. Now, you know there are no other sources of water or food in this desert, but you don't like his tone. Uh, You don't like that Jesus gets to call the shots. So you turn around and walk back into the desert, Uh, which is what Jesus challenges the disciples with. Verse uh, the, The 12 disciples, as everyone else leaves, Jesus says to them, verse 67, do you not want to leave too? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the third option. To see the offer, the offerer, the one making the offer, and go with it. Yes, there are costs. Initial offences even. But this option... Uh, is to, like Peter, recognise that Jesus is the only source of life. There are no other options. Now, this is a hard truth, but it is the truth. And it's recognising this truth that there are no other options for life that helps us to see that, secondly, what Jesus is offering is good. He's not a mean God. He's not a nasty God who wants slaves to bow and scrape and suffer. He's offering life. He's offering a relationship with God that stretches into eternity. He's offering freedom from selfishness, from sin and from despair. This is a good offer. And if you're listening today, then to some extent God has drawn you here. He's drawn you to hear from him. He's drawn you to be challenged and to be invited to join his family. So I want to encourage you, if that's you today, please take up this offer. Ask for forgiveness. Trust Jesus to free you and begin this journey of following and serving him. And if you've already done that, if you're already a Christian, uh, we need to recognize that Jesus will offend us. And today, right now, we need to choose how we will respond. Right now, knowing that offense is coming, We need to commit to going with Jesus, whatever he says, rather than our culture, our instincts or our influences, going with Jesus. For Christians, uh, this passage also means that we, we can't get proud. It means that we are no better than anyone else because we're Christians. I'm not a Christian because I'm smarter, more moral, more wise or more valuable than anyone else. The only reason I follow Jesus is because God saved me. I did nothing. I had nothing to offer. I was his enemy and he saved me. 
And so we can't be proud that we're Christians and others aren't. Another lesson we learn here is not to soften the gospel. Now, sometimes we're tempted to sugarcoat the message of Jesus, you know, just to not mention the offensive bits. But if we do that, we're doing no one any favours. In fact, we're hurting them because the Jesus they would be signing up to follow is not the Jesus of the Bible. It's a Jesus like Jefferson's Jesus, a fake, <laughs> made-up Jesus, chopped and changed. It's not the same Jesus, and that Jesus cannot save. So instead, let's share the true bread of heaven. Let, let's bring people to Jesus because he is the only one who will truly satisfy. He's the only one who can give life. It really is good news we have to share. So let's share it. Join me as we pray. Father God, thank you so much that you offer us good news. That as we are wandering in the desert, as we are your enemies drowning and still shooting at your boat, you reach out and offer us mercy. We thank you that it's not even just an offer, but that you, you draw us, you call us. And we want to recognize now that we are incapable of responding properly to you. That we are not good, that we won't accept your offer of forgiveness. So please do that work in us again and again each day. Soften our hearts and draw us to yourself. Help us to accept and love you for who you are and what you give to us. And help us to share this good news of Jesus with everyone we know and love. In Jesus' name. Amen.